Hi there. Happy New Year. It's great to see you. <clears throat> hey, uh, just to, because it's a new year, I, I feel it's important to ask some important questions as we get going. Uh, number one, are there any fans of the McRib in the house? What's up? If, if you, I want you to notice that these are all men. Uh, that are Okay, uh, there's one female McRib fan. This could be the only female McRib fan. All right. Um, I grew up loving the McRib. I got to tell you, uh, I love that barbecue flavor that only McDonald's can bring to us. Um, now, Carrie and I, Carrie, my wife, if you don't know, uh, we, we've been talking about the McRib uh, for months. And uh, it has led me to do some research about the McRib that I'm going to share with you right now. Uh, Ten amazing facts about the McRib. Here we go. Number one, uh, the McRib came out because of a, shortness, a shortage of chickens. <coughs> True story, the McNuggets came out and they were so popular they couldn't keep them in stock. And so they, um, they introduced the McRib to like divert people from getting the McNuggets. Um, McRib is inspired by Southern Barbecue. That's number true. And what a true... Anyway. Um, McRib is the product of restructured meat technology. Learned this. Now, you really want... You're going to be glad you got out of bed for this. Um, it's a mix of tripe, heart, and stomach. And uh, so, you know, that, that's there. And um, the whole process... This is number four. The whole process of fresh pork to frozen McRib takes 45 minutes. Um, the, in, the, number five, the entire McRib sandwich contains about 70 ingredients, including a flour bleaching agent used to make yoga mats. Um, so, you know, there, there you have it. Um, and uh, what else? You know, um, the McRib, number six, it debuted in 1981, disappeared in 1985, um, resur- has now resurfaced from time to time since 1994. And there's, uh, listen, I, I did way more research on this than I should have. And this is what happens like on New Year's Day. Anyway, so, I, so I, I'm, I'm researching and there's this whole conspiracy out there. This is, this is just, this is, anyway, this is what happens when you are on the internet too long. Um, so there's this whole theory as to when, why the, you know, the McRib only comes back periodically. And there's this whole idea that the McRib only comes back when pork prices fall to a certain level. And then they bring it back because they're, they're buying it up. Anyway, so there's that. Um, number seven, individual restaurants can order the ingredients from the McRib anytime. They, uh, McDonald's keeps the McRib scarce um, because the sandwich's entire brand relies on it. I don't know if you knew that. It does. It just is now you know now. Um, they actually tried to create more McRib-esque products because we were all looking for that. And uh, it didn't work. And then number 10, there's actually a website that tracks where the McRib is available anywhere in the United States. So I will not give that to you because I do not want to be, you know, like part of the police report, you know. So you killed him. Why? You told him where the McRib was. Anyway, so, <coughs> pardon me. So my wife and I, I've had this ongoing debate about the McRib, and um, I told her, "Do we? I think we have a picture of this uh, of the McRib." Uh, just you know, anyway, um, my my my. I tell her the McRib is awesome. My wife tells me it's disgusting. She says it's a shoe dunked in barbecue sauce, which, after my research, she's wrong. It's a yoga mat dumped in bar, dunked in barbecue sauce. Um, now, truth be told, now here's the truth: I haven't actually had a McRib since I was in high school. And so, but I still talk, but I loved them in high school. 
And so that's why I tell people all the time how awesome the McRib is. And so my wife had just had enough of me promoting the McRib. And she said, you know what? She said this to me like three months ago. When the McRib comes back, I'm buying you one. And you're going to eat it. And you're going to like it. Or not like it. But you're going to eat it either way. So anyway, last Saturday, um, there's a McDonald's about a block from our house. And so we're driving uh, down, down uh, Miramar Parkway. <coughs> and we, we see this big sign that says, it's back. McRib. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I see her slowing the car down. And I'm just thinking, oh, no. Uh, I, was, I was terrified. But anyway, so the other day, um, I get, I'm at home. She goes out for something. She comes back. And she says, hey, I got you something. I said, oh, what was that? And I thought it was, I don't know, something good. She got me a McRib. And she's like, here, you're going to eat it for lunch. And, but what's everybody else going to eat? Oh, I made, I bought them good food. Um, but you're going to eat a McRib. And then she's taking pictures of me. I didn't even bring the pictures of me because it's like, maybe I should. She says I should have. I think, I don't know. I felt it was too much of an incriminating evidence. But she's like taking pictures. Of me. Like, there's a picture of me opening the McRib. It's more like this, you know, and then uh, anyway, so I take one bite of the McRib and nearly threw up um, and, and it tasted like death with a side of French fries. And uh, now, and, you know, what the weird part is to me is I was totally shocked because I liked it so much in high school. I mean, there were times in high school, you know, like I, I played football, like after football practice, me and some of the guys who played, we would shotgun two McRibs and a Coke. Like, that's, that's how we'd roll. Then again, our team wasn't very good, so it tells you something about that. Um, so <laughs> but the weird part is, I, tr- I have this McRib like 20 years later, and I'm like, I just can't believe that it's not any good. And I'm thinking, and I said to my, my wife, I'm like, I can't believe the McRib has changed so much. And she gets mad at me, and she's like, no, the McRib hasn't changed, Bob. You've changed. We've been married now for almost 16 years. I, through Jesus, have changed your taste buds. And, uh, you know, that's really the issue. It has nothing to do with them. It has to do with me helping you become a normal human. And, um, and, and it's a weird thing, you know, like you just realize, like, you know, how different you are than you were in high school, right? I have way less hair than I had in high school. I'm pretty sure now I could graduate in just the four years instead of the extra fifth. But I'm different. Listen, I am different down to my taste buds. And, and I'm guessing that you are too. And, and here's the deal, right? It's a brand new year. Everybody wants to change something. Everybody wants to look different, think different, weigh different, kick certain habits, make other habits, do new things in this new year that maybe they hadn't done in previous years. <clears throat> and here's what I know about all of us, no matter where it is that we are in life. All of us look at ourselves as a work in progress. There, I don't know any person, and I know a lot of people, um, and, and I don't know any person, I've never met any person that thought that at their current stage, I'm like, you know what, I'm good. There's nothing you want to change? No, I'm pretty much a perfect specimen right now. Right? There's nobody that's thinking that. And, and you know, so I, I've never met anybody that, that's, that's thought that. Instead, all of us are trying to change something about us. And so, but the question is, this is the stuff that drives us crazy, and this is the stuff that books and books are written about and shows are about, and that is, how? How does change actually happen in a human life? And the answer really is, is um, simple, yet very pro- quite profound. 
You see, I believe that the reason that many of us haven't been able to change um, is because of this a misunderstanding about change that we're going to talk about. See, the reason that, you know, we say, well, I'm not going to eat too much this Thanksgiving, and then we end up doing it anyway, is because we violate this, this principle. The reason that we say, I'm not going to spend too much this Christmas, and we end up spending too much this Christmas, is because we violate this principle. The reason that we um, say, well, this year I'm not going to use my time unwisely like I did last year, but then we end up kind of doing the same things and getting into the same habits and the same routines is because we violate this, this very same principle. And, and, and listen, and here it is. It's such a simple thing. <clears throat> but the challenge is not just kind of understanding it. It's, it's implementing And here's what it is, right? Change is an exchange. That's all it is. Change is an exchange. I add and subtract. One of the things that we try to do is we try to simply add new things and we think that that's what's going to bring about change and it doesn't work because change is an exchange. I've got to bring something in and give something away. I've got to start something new and I've got to stop doing something else. It's not just subtracting. It's not just adding. It's exchanging one thing for another. This is the very thing that God wanted to teach the people of Israel. Israel had been captive in a... a, a country called Babylon. They had been taken over by the Babylonians for 70 years. Then there were a group called the Persians who came in. They conquered the Babylonians. And so now kind of by proxy, they've essentially, they've got this group of people, Israel, that the people that they conquered had taken over. And so eventually they just say, hey, you know, Israel, we don't have a beef with you. Just why don't you go back to your homeland? And so about 50,000 Jews go back to the homeland to, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. There's a guy by the name of Nehemiah. You may have heard of him. He's got a book out. And um, Nehemiah goes back and he rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem. But remember, Nehemiah was a counselor, a cupbearer to the king. Eventually, he's got to kind of go back to his day job, which is working for the king, being the cupbearer, being that chief counselor. So he goes back to serving the king of Persia. Well, what ends up happening is, is that once Nehemiah leaves, everything falls apart. And just like what happens to us, we just say things are going to be different, everything's going to change, and here's what happens. Then we kind of start getting on a roll, now something changes, that, some outside element, and now we kind of fall back into the same patterns. And that's what happened with Israel. They fell back into the same patterns that they had previously, the things that led them into going into captivity in the first place. Well, so what God does at this, at this time, <coughs> pardon me, is that he raises up prophets. He raises up prophets to help these people get back on track. And one of the prophets that God raises up is a guy by the name of Malachi. Malachi is a name that means my messenger. And this was God's man to preach a message of repentance to the people, to bring them back into relationship with God. The book of Malachi, which we're going to spend the next oh, month or two studying together, is a book that really um, is built around a series of questions. It's built around a series of statements that God makes and then a series of questions that Israel uh, has for him. And so every few verses uh, in, in this book of Malachi that we're going to look at, what you'll find is that they say, well, what about this? And they just they, they ask these questions. And what God is doing through this Q&A session, essentially, is calling his people to change, calling his people back. That's what repentance it really is. Repentance is just about changing your direction. It's about changing your mind. It's about getting off the path that you're on and getting back onto God's path, the path that he has for you and for me. 
And in these opening verses of Malachi, God is going to teach us what change is and how change works in our lives. So I'm going to invite you, if you have your Bible, to open to the book of Malachi chapter 1. If you have your Bible app, you can open that (coughs) to... um, to, to Malachi, and if you say, I have no idea where Malachi is, you go to the very end of the Old Testament. If you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you've got to hang a left, because it's the last book in the Old Testament right before you get to the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Now if you pause there and give me your attention. Here's the first thing that I want to teach you this morning um, about change and how it works. Change works like this. Number one, um, change begins with a leading from God. It begins with a leading from God. Uh, Malachi opens with a common Old Testament phrase that is completely lost in our culture. Um, It starts out, it says, the burden of the word of the Lord. I mean, which is not something that you hear all the time on TV. Um, You know, but it sounds like a bad thing because, you know, who likes to have a burden? But the opposite is true. And in fact, this is a good burden to have. Um, the, the, the word burden there in Hebrew is the word masa, M-A-S-S-A, and it means, it means to carry something usually heavy. And, and here's what we might think is, um, is like, we, we think of a burden like, oh man, I'm burdened by this. Oh, I just want to release that. But no, it's, it's, it's a good thing. You see, my kids, when we go to Target or Toys R Us, and I tell them that they can get a toy, even a big toy, um, like there was... Um, this toy that I got for my son, this giant track. It's a car's track, and you got to charge the, um, you got to charge each of the cars up, and then they just kind of. It was actually pretty awesome. I sometimes play with it when he's asleep. No, I don't. Um, even though I, I've thought about it, but it's this really super cool track that he has, and you got to put the whole thing together. It's humongous. When I told Xander he could get that track, you should. The, the box was bigger than his body, and he's like, you know, okay, thanks, Bobby. Xander, you want me to put this in the, in the cart? No, I got it! <clears throat> Same thing, you know, when my, when my daughter has gotten like this big like dollhouse princess thing. I mean, she will carry that thing all the way to the register and you can tell her, hey, do you want to put it? No, no, no! I got it! There is no way you're going to pry this away from me. And this is the burden. It doesn't, you know, but I, the weird thing is, I've seen my kids carry that. I've also asked my kids like to carry it like a box of tissues. Uh, you know, Mia, can you just pick up, can you go to the couch and get me the box of tissues? Oh, but it's so heavy. It's just so much. Xander, can you pick that up off the floor? Oh, that's so far away. You know, and it's like, dude, you're like very close to the ground. You know, uh, you live like right there. And uh, anyway, so once again, what is the, what is a burden? If it's real heavy, it doesn't really matter. If it's something that you love. If it's real light, you can make it a burden if it's something that you don't really care about. And in this, this is the burden of God. This is God giving this burden of a message to share. You see, um, we, what we can do is <clears throat> we can give burdens because we believe people are ready to handle it. See, when I tell my son I want, I want him to carry something, um, it's because I believe he's ready to handle it, right? Him and I went, we were all over the place yesterday and we went to like Goodwill to drop off some stuff and we, uh, we took, we, it was like a rite of passage. Um, I took, he was his first trip to the city dump, which he thought was like the coolest place ever. 
you know, because only a three-year-old boy would think the dump is like, he's like, can we stay here for a while? I'm like, no, we cannot stay here for a while. Oh, all right. But he thought it was the coolest thing to like take stuff and throw it into a dumpster and hear the loud noise. And, you know, he, he, he refers to this as man stuff. You know, this is because well, I told him it's, it's man stuff. Um, this is all, this is, these are man things. And uh, no girls. He's like, this is boys only. He, so he was really into it. He's like, Mia, you can't go. Boys only. See you later. Anyway, he was, real, he was militant. Um, <clears throat> but the thing is this. When I give him something, all right, Xander, take this and dump it over. He's so excited because he realizes dad thinks I'm ready to handle the burden of throwing this over. And listen, this kind of burden is God's message. And I, and I want to tell you something. This is what I would love to see in 2013. I would love to see a lot less common comments and opinions and a lot more burdens from the Lord. You see, there, I think that where we live in 2013 is a lot like there's this period of time in the Old Testament um, when the prophet Samuel was born right before the time of the kings, um, of, you know, Saul and David and Solomon. It says this. I didn't put it in your notes, but just jot it down. It's 1 Samuel 3.1. It says, now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and this is, his, this is um, the description of the time. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no widespread re- revelation. You see, everybody's got an opinion. And the thing with opinions is they're instant. Oh, well, that's kind of what I think. And you decide what you like or what you don't like, but, um, you know, what you want to see happen, what you don't. But see, a word from God is different. A word from God is where you have spent time with God. You've prayed through something, and now you want to share something. It's much more than an opinion. It's, hey, you know what? I've been praying about this. Can I just share this with you? It's, it's been on my heart. We, you hear that. And, uh, what do we say when something is on my heart? It's, it's something that's been weighing on me. It's a burden, but it's a good burden. And I want to share that with people that I care about and love, that I want to see do well. The burden of the Lord is also when you know that God has shared something to, with you, for the purpose of sharing it with someone else. And when you do, God does amazing things. Um, <clears throat> years ago, back when I was an assistant pastor at, at Calvary Chapel of Fort Lauderdale, um, I was asked to meet with uh, this couple that w- needed benevolence. And um, it wasn't a normal thing. I spent most of my time running a college um, there, but I was happy to meet with them. And so I walked outside, and there's this little atrium area. And so I sat down with them, and this couple... It was obvious they were totally strung out uh, on whatever drug they were on. And um, they were maybe beginning the process of, of withdrawal. And they were asking us for assistance for some food. And so I was talking to them about... Their, the, he, the guy was talking to me about the situation. And it was one of these things where God um, just spoke, into my, spoke to my heart and said, You know this guy. And I mean, and I, 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 was, I had been talking with him for a few minutes and I, I couldn't, didn't recognize him from Adam. And God just spoke to me and said, you know this guy. And, and I looked at him again and it all came to me at that moment. And he was giving all the reasons why he wasn't into quote unquote church and gave me all the excuses. And, um, and so he's like, you know, I don't know what you think about that. And, and I said, yeah, I, I just have one question for you. He said, sure. I said, have you ever been to Coral Square Mall in Coral Springs? And it's like the weirdest question you could ask for a guy who just said he's not into church or whatever. Have you ever been to Coral Square Mall? And he said, yeah, yeah, I've, I've been there. I said, but you've actually been there. You used to go there a lot. I mean, you used to kind of hang out there, right? Well, yeah. And I said, in fact, 
you used to walk up to kids that were wearing like Metallica or Iron Maiden t-shirts and you would preach the gospel to them, right? Yeah, I did. I said, so you would hang out at the mall to evangelize, to share the gospel with people. And he said, how do you know that? I said, because when I was in high school, you walked up to a kid wearing a Metallica shirt and that kid was me. And you shared the gospel with me. And um, listen, that guy, I mean, you would have thought that guy thought he saw a ghost. Um, He just froze and immediately him and his girlfriend started to cry. I prayed with them. They recommitted their life to Jesus and began to get some help to get on on the right track. And, and, And my friends, and here's the thing is the thing that I said to them is I said, you know, you came here, you've got all this stuff and you think, man, God has forgotten me. And I'm here to tell you. God took me out of doing something else somewhere else to bring me here because I was the guy who knew you. And I'm here to tell you that God hasn't forgotten you. And my friend, that might be you. You might be here and you're thinking that God has forgotten you and that things aren't going to turn around and that maybe, could it be that God is using this tough situation that you're in to get your attention? to get you to finally turn back to him and that God is trying to lead you to him. In fact, if you would look at the week or two that you've had leading up to you being in this place today, that that's actually what happened, that all of this was taking place and it was all a matter of now you finally getting here so that you could hear this message that God hasn't forgotten you, that really things can change and can turn around, (coughs) that you look at this and you say, maybe all of this has been God leading me. God leading me to a place because that's where change begins. Where you make a choice to follow him and embrace the love and grace and mercy of God. And that's what God says next. I want you to look now at verse 2 of of Malachi. Here's what he says. He says, I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. If you pause there and give me your attention. Um, the second thing I want to tell you about change is this. Change begins with a leading from God. Number two, change takes hold when we embrace the truth. It takes hold when we embrace the truth. Um, I told you that Malachi is built around a series of questions. In fact, I want you to think about this. That there's only 55 verses in Malachi and there are 27 questions that are asked. And you might think, well, are, these, are they just challenging God's authority? No, no, no. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, this is actually a type of teaching, a rabbinic teaching. It was called remiz. Uh, when a rabbi wanted to teach a student something, he would teach him in this series of question and answer, what was called remiz. Remiz in Hebrew is a word that means hint. And so the key was, is that you needed to know the text. Because if you knew the text... God would give, uh, or, you know, the rabbi would give you part of the answer, but then the verse before or after it was actually the answer. So if you asked a rabbi, you know, what color is the sky? He would say roses are red. Okay, violets are, all right, okay, I got, I got the answer now. And that's why, if you ever notice this when you're reading the Gospels, maybe some of you are doing like a Bible reading plan in the beginning, and you're, get, you're working your way through the Gospels, and it's sometimes the weirdest thing that happens is that um, the the the, the, the Pharisees, you know, the religious leaders say something to Jesus. Jesus answers, gives them like a question or says something to them. And then the next verse says, and then they wanted to kill him. And you're like, well, how did that happen? Uh, you know, he just answered a question. The issue is it's remiss. The next line was usually something against them. Here's what I mean. Uh, Jesus is in the temple healing the sick. 
And so there's little kids that are shouting, praise God for the son of David. The Pharisees get mad and Jesus says, haven't you ever read the scriptures that out of the mouth of babes, you have perfected praise? And then it says, well, then they get all upset and they want to kill him. But why is that? Well, see, the answer is not, that's not really the answer to the question. That's remiss. Haven't you ever read? These these people were experts in the Bible. That's like, first of all, kind of insulting. Um, You know, like, uh, you know, have I ever read the Bible? It's like asking someone who's Cuban, have you ever seen Que Pasa USA? Like, of course I have. You know, I've got that show memorized. Um, (coughs) So you've got, so he's saying, have you ever read, you know, so you've got these people, they've spent their whole lives studying the Bible. Have you ever read the Bible? Like, of course I've read the Bible. Well, then, you know, the Bible says out of the mouth of babes, you've perfected praise. But see, that's not the answer. The answer is the rest of the verse. The verse says, out of the mouth of babes, you have perfected praise to silence your enemies who are seeking revenge. It's basically the shut up verse of the Bible. And so they're like, hey, do you know what they're saying? You should make them stop. And he's, how about this? How about you shut up? And, uh, and so that's why they get mad. So now I, I bring it back to Malachi. So the opening verse, the opening thing that God says to them is, I have loved you. And their answer is, well, when did you love us? See, that's, the statement is, it's not just a statement, I have loved you, it's remiss. If they knew the Bible, they would know the answer. That's why I put um, in, in the passage here in Jeremiah that says this, uh, the, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you. And here's what they say. Here's what he says, with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. You see, their response, I have loved you, what the answer was, well, how have you loved us? I've loved you with an everlasting love. because the love was based on a covenant with Israel. You see, that means that his love cannot be broken. God's promises are not like promises that we make, right? We say we're going to be somewhere, we're going to do something, and we do it or don't do it. You know, we're like, oh, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. God's promises are different. God's promises cannot be broken. Why? Because the Bible says, even if we're faithless, he is faithful, because he cannot deny himself. It says that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The idea is, is that God doesn't break his covenant because God, it doesn't matter what we do, he's going to keep his end of the bargain because he's God. And the issue is this. Israel is going through a very difficult time and they're saying, how have you loved us? You've loved us? And he says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. And they're thinking, well, if you've loved us, why are things so tough? And God's response to that, well, why are things so tough? He says, well, Things are tough because, and he, and he says this, his answer is with a question. It's remiss. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Well, yeah. And he says, if you notice that, then I chose Jacob and I didn't choose Esau. In fact, he says it this way, um, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. And what he does is essentially he highlights the special relationship that God has with Israel compared to his relationship with uh, Esau or the descendants of Esau, which are called the Edom or the Edomites. Um, so let's, let me talk about this passage, which some people believe is like one of the most difficult passages in all the Bible because it involves God hating someone. And right, God has to like, you know, God's supposed to like everybody, right? Um, so let me do a little bit of background and set the stage if I can. Um, Jacob and Esau were brothers, all right? A- God calls Abraham. Abraham has a son called Isaac. Isaac has two boys, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older, Jacob is the younger. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> and so God promises Abraham that his family, 
would be blessed, that the Messiah would be a descendant of their family. But God chooses that that line go through Jacob instead of through Esau. It go through the younger brother instead of through the older brother. Understand, that's very different in this culture. Because in this culture, the older brother inherited everything. Got the spiritual and the material blessings. And now what we have to understand too is when the Bible says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. He's speaking, these are words that are used of comparison. They're not emotional words when we talk about I love something or hate something. Um, they're, they're not, it's not an emotional commentary about God's feelings um, between, uh, of two people. Jesus used this idea. In fact, I put it in your notes in, in Luke chapter 14. Let me read this to you. Jesus says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And who does ever not, uh, who does, whoever does not uh, bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So it's not like there's this questionnaire that, you know, okay, you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Excellent. Okay, first question. Um, do you hate your mother and father? Oh, I despise them. Wonderful. You hate your wife? Oh, despise her. Great, great. Your kids? I couldn't care if I'd ever see them again. Great. Do you hate yourself? I loathe myself. Wonderful. You're in. You're in. You'd make a great, you qualify. Um, That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is essentially, because remember, what does the Bible say? One of the top ten. Honor your mother and father. So Jesus isn't talking about literally hating your parents. Instead, he's using a contrast. He's saying that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to love God supremely and love God above all else. And that, so that the love you have for God com- doesn't compare to, 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 to anyone else. <clears throat> the other thing to note, too, is this, is that if you read through Genesis, you get to Genesis 33, you get to Genesis 36. What you find is, is that God does bless Esau. Um, but notice this, the blessings are all material. Whereas Jacob's blessings are material and spiritual. You see, the whole point that God is making through Malachi is, is that Israel has been given a very special and privileged position. Well, how have you loved us? How have I loved you? The fact that you, you and I even have relationship is based on my love for you. That I appeared to your grandfather Abraham. And that that blessing got passed to Isaac. And now that blessing passed to you and that the Messiah is going to come through your line. You see, what happened, I want you to think about this. What happened to other nations who disobeyed God? They got wiped out. I mean, there's a prophet named Obadiah. We actually studied that book last year that actually predicted the destruction of Edom, the descendants of, of Esau, because of all of their evil, evil deeds. And what happened to Israel? It, God never destroys Israel. They, are, they, they commit evil acts, and like a father, he might discipline them or punish them for a season, but they never get wiped out. Instead, they, they've suffered through the ages, but God has always kept them as a people. So when was the last time you ran into an Edomite? Well, not, not you know, recently, or a Hittite, or a Jebusite, or a Canaanite. All those ites are gone. All that's left are the flashlights and the uptights. That's it. And so, but Israel is still here. Why? Because God has loved them with an everlasting love. Because God made a covenant with them. And that covenant is more than a promise. It's an agreement that God makes with humanity. But it doesn't matter what humanity does. God always keeps his end of the bargain. And so God doesn't break his covenant to anyone. Here's what that means. If you're a Christian, 
That means God has called you. God has chosen you. In fact, the Bible would say in Ephesians that he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. God picked you. Can I tell you this? And by the way, it wasn't because you were so good or so righteous or so holy. You know what the Bible says in the book of Romans? It says this, that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. See, Jesus didn't die for us when we were like in church, reading the Bible. You know, we're like teaching our kids Bibles. That wasn't when Jesus died for us. It's when we didn't care. <clears throat> when we were running in the opposite direction from him, that's when he died for us. And he chose you, listen, because he loves you. That means a Christian, can I tell you this? As a Christian, you should never suffer from like low self-esteem. You know, people, I, I talk to people like, you know, I just have low self-esteem. Really? You have low self-esteem? And, and it just tells me you don't understand the gospel. That out of the mass of humanity, God said, I would like you. You ever, you ever play, um, you, you, like when you're in school and you're, you're going to play, you know, kickball or something. I don't know, kids still play kickball? I hope so. That's like a time-honored sport. It should be in the Olympics. Anyway, um, which I would totally be there, by the way. Um, anyway, so you, you, ever, you ever have people play captains? And then um, maybe you were of the um, athletic ilk uh, that you would get picked first. And then maybe, or maybe you were of the, um, uh, like, here's, here's what happened to me. I've always been a pretty good athlete. And so, but, but I moved around a lot. And so when people got to know me, they knew I was a pretty good player, so I would always be one of the first people picked. But see, when I would, ever, when I would eventually, which always seemed to happen, I'd move to a new school, then I'd just kind of be standing around because they didn't know if I was any good or not. And so then I'd get to the end, and it'd be like, well, I guess you're on our team, which, by the way, is like the worst thing ever, uh, to be like the last guy. You're not even picked. You're just, you know, okay, come on. You're getting drafted. There's no signing bonus. Let's go, you know. <clears throat> but then, but see, there's something else that when... They pick captains and they say, oh, who do you want first? I want you. And they, they pick you. And see, that's what God did. If you're a believer, if you, I mean, you've given your life to Jesus. Can I tell you something? Listen, God saw that before the foundation of the world. And he picked you. And, and so that's why, man, really God picked me. God, God loves me that much that he would actually pick me. Yeah. So let, let me answer the other question that you're probably thinking about, which is, if God picked me, does that mean he didn't pick other people? I mean, what about people who aren't Christians? Does that mean that they aren't chosen, they aren't elect, they aren't predestined, they aren't, um, does, does God really care about them? And here's, here's what I've learned. What I've learned is this, is that everyone who embraces the gospel, everyone who gives their life to Jesus, receives God's forgiveness, is chosen by God. Well, what if I don't want to embrace the gospel? What if I don't want to be forgiven? Well, then maybe God didn't choose you. Well, what if I do want to get saved? Maybe God did. I guess we'll have to see how you respond to find out. Well, I'm, uh, well you may as well just do it and then you find out. Um, but here's, here, here's the whole thing. The whole thing is, listen, if you want to, it, listen, we all want to change. We all want to see things happen differently in 2013. Here's what we have to embrace. What we have to embrace is this idea that I am loved by God. Listen, if you aren't a Christian, this is where it all begins. This is where it all begins, that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And the reality, <clears throat> that reality will transform your life and give you hope greater than anything else that this world can offer to us or throw our way. 
He says this. He says, how do I, how do I, I, I've loved you. I've loved you with an everlasting love because I chose you. I picked you. Look at the last thing he says. I want to look at verse four and five. He says this, uh, even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you will say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to share with you. And that is, we see where change begins, where change takes hold, but here's how change is sustained. Change is sustained through dependence on God. I told you that Jake, that uh, Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had twin boys named uh, Esau and Jacob. Um, Esau, by the way, is this kind of a weird name. It, it's, it has two meanings in Hebrew. One means red, because he was red. And then the other name means Harry, because he was Harry. So it's like, you know, Isaac looks at his wife, Rebecca. She gives birth. Well, we got a red, hairy guy. What do you call him? Well, let's call him Red and Harry. Um, I don't know if you know this, but archaeologists have actually discovered a picture of Esau. We have it right here. There he is. <laughs> red and Harry. Um, so, and he talks with a very high-pitched voice. Yeah. So... <clears throat> But, but if, you read, um, if you read Genesis 27, if you're doing a Bible plan, you'll get there. Um, Jacob actually steals the birthright. Um, the birthright, which was spiritual leadership in the family. But uh, from Esau. Esau didn't care about that. He actually traded it for a bowl of beans. He said he, Jacob was making a stew. And he's like, hey, I want some of that stew. And he says, Jacob says, all right, why don't you, I'll give you a bowl of stew. You trade me your birthright. Who cares about the birthright? I could care less about that. I don't really care about spiritual leadership in our family. All I want is the inheritance. That's all I care about. And so, Jacob later, through all this crazy stuff, will actually steal the blessing as well. Um, And later, and there's tension between Jacob and Esau. And they later make peace. um, But what happens is this. But later, there's tension even between the descendants of Jacob, who are Israel, and the descendants of Esau, who are Edom, or the Edomites. And in fact, when the children of Israel leave Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, the Edomites, uh, they, they actually go to the Edomites and say, hey, can we cut through your land to get to our land? And they say, no, 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 you can't cut through our land because there's, there's a problem between us, between our forefather and, and your forefather, and there's still a problem with us, so you don't need to go around. And so there's this fundamental difference between Israel and Edom, between Jacob and Esau. And it's that one cares about spiritual things and the other doesn't. Let me read you this verse from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, speaking about Edom, or speaking about Esau. It says, look after each other so that none of you falls, fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up uh, to trouble you, corrupting many. Make sure that no one is immoral or godless like Esau, who traded his birthright as the firstborn son for a single meal. You know that afterward he wanted his father's blessing, he would was rejected. It was too late for repentance, even though he begged with bitter tears. You see, I don't want you to think that even though <clears throat> he wasn't tricked, there was some trickery that went on, but Esau didn't care. 
He didn't care about spiritual things. And his life is summarized in the fact that he never saw the value of spiritual things. And that's why today, I mean, the land of Israel and the land of Edom are right next to each other. Geographically. I've been to both. I've been to both. I I remember waking up in Edom. Today it's called Jordan. uh, And then traveling over to Israel. And and, and, I mean, Jordan, where the Edomites are from, is just a wasteland. It's nothing. It's just desolation. And every time they say, we're going to build it up, we're going to do it. I mean, we're going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. They can never do it. Because there's this fundamental idea that they just do, do not care about spiritual things. Yet Israel, it's a land that's flourishing. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. You see, a lot of people, they live their lives like the Edomites. And they say, oh, things are bad, but it's a new year and I'm going to make it happen. You see that in verse 4? The Ed- Even though Edom says, we've been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. I mean, we're going to do it. And here's what God says. It's not going to happen. You're going to try to build it, but I'm going to knock it down. Well, why would God do that? Because there's an understanding. It's not just about having success. It's about realizing the purpose, why you're alive. That God has, is saying, I'm just going to keep doing this until you just, I can just get, get some sense into you that there's something even more important here. <clears throat> and that's getting your life right with God. And that's what can happen to us is that we just say, well, this is the year I'm going to do it. And then it doesn't happen. And we get so frustrated. And we get so frustrated about our inability to change our circumstances. And we think that it's the circumstance that needs to change. See, it's what I learned about the McRib. I mean, it's the same thing all over again. It's not that that needs to change. It's me that needs to change. It's us that needs to change. The circumstance doesn't have to change. We have to change. And the way that we change is to be transformed by the power of God. And that only happens when we realize that God loves us, just like Jacob, that God loves us and wants to change our life. You know, Jacob, I I told you that um, Jacob, uh, that Esau's name means red and hairy. Um, Jacob, when when Esau was born, um, when when, when he was being born, they actually saw that his, um, his hand was on his brother's heel. Jacob's hand was on Esau's heel as he was being born. And then, you know, a couple seconds later, um, Jacob is born. And they say, oh, can you believe this kid? He's, he's holding his brother's heel. And that's what the name Jacob means. It means heel catcher. But then later, because Jacob was this person who was given to deception, it became, it, it's, a, it's a name that came to mean deceiver, supplanter. But there's this night that the night, this, there was this day, this evening that changed his life. He's running from his brother who wanted to kill him. And he sleeps and he uses a rock for a pillow. And, he ha- and the place is called Luz. But he has a dream that night. And he sees a ladder from heaven to earth. And he sees angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up he says these words, surely the Lord was in this place and I knew it not. And he changes the name from Luz to Bethel, which means house of God. You see, this is the work that God wants to do in you. He wants to take your life from darkness to light. My friends, Jesus Christ died for you. 
And you know, in that act of love, when he was crucified, he's saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. Listen, there, there are some of you that might think that God hates you because of some things that have happened in your life. Can I tell you something? God doesn't hate you. God loves you with an everlasting love. But sometimes there are going to be moments where we want to build and God says, no, I'm not going to let that be built. Because you'll revel in your own success, your own self-righteousness, and what happens is, and you're going to live less of a life. God came to this earth to die for you, to give you life. That's how much he loves you. Because it's not that our circumstances need so much changing as it is us who needs changing. We need God to transform us, to change us from the inside out. That's the work that God wants to do in us. Let's pray together that he does that work. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that it's a new year and that you want to do a new work in us. We thank you for the promise that you have loved us with an everlasting love. That you chose us. And that you want to do a work in us. That today could be a day that everything could change for each of us. But Lord, for those of us who have never made a decision to follow you, those of us who maybe we know you, but we've walked away from you. Lord, today could be the day. That moment like Jacob had, he went to sleep in Luz, but he woke up in Bethel, the house of God, when he saw you and his life was changed forever. God, may that be the day. Today, in Jesus' name, amen.